This is episode 15 of the Anxious Poets podcast. The leaves are starting to turn yellow. The virus shows no sign of going away. We live in anxious times. Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Hi, I'm Adrian. I'm the Anxious Poet. We seem to be living in anxious times. I was watching Newsnight last night. In fact, I was almost dozing off. And then they had a piece about anxiety, so I, I woke up a little bit and started to listen, and there was this poor young woman on talking about how uh, she felt through the COVID crisis, the intensification of that pressure cooker of anxiety, and, and that this was spreading through our society at the moment. There was a rise, an exponential rise in uh people suffering and, and reporting that they were suffering from from anxiety. And then a woman came on called Natasha Devon, who said she was experiencing Cassandra Freude. So I, I listened even more intently. And what she meant by that was, was that she had been the government's czar for mental health issues. We love to have czars, don't we? And... Um, she had criticised the government for contributing to this pressure cooker through their policies of austerity. This is before coronavirus and educational policy that, that, that created these moments where if you fail that exam or you don't pass that test or your school is below par, then everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And... She was saying that she had tried to tell the government this and, and, and that they had not listened and now we were reaping the whirlwind of anxiety. Um, and as someone who has suffered from anxiety, I couldn't help but agree with her. Recently, I've been involved with a, a, an online gathering called Men Behaving Vulnerably as I've done quite a lot of men's work in the past with the male journey, some of us from the male journey and other men's projects have gathered together. It was meant to be a um, an actual uh, in-person event in uh, early March, April, and then, of course, it couldn't happen. So we took it online, and and we've done various different events there's poetry and music and and different uh dramatic contributions trying to help us as men to um explore our vulnerability a part of which is anxiety and the last one we did we were looking at the issue of what someone described as don't forget the pause because we were coming towards autumn and the beginning of a new school term and university term and relaxing some of the constrictions um, around the virus. We wanted to explore that idea of don't forget what that lockdown, which was an experience of liminality, liminar meaning threshold, being in between, being... Uh, 
in this place of uncertainty, which in fact can be very powerful. It, it creates that sense of not being in control, of vulnerability, of fear, yes, of anxiety, but that can be a doorway to finding a deeper sense of who we are, a deeper sense of self. It seems that it takes a crisis to uncover what is deeply embedded within human beings. The word soul in Greek is psyche. And Jung talked about the self with a capital S, a deep well of resource and inheritance and the power to live a really rich, full life that we don't experience on the surface a lot of the time because we're, we're caught in things that are urgent but not important, that distract us. And it takes a crisis to introduce us to that frontier where we can reach those inner depths. The word apocalypse means to uncover and and you could argue that we are living in apocalyptic times where this crisis is uncovering a whole new element to humanity that is actually equal to the crisis we're facing. And it's that frontier that introduces us to the depths of ourselves which are equal to what is going on. I was doing some work with, with people who are all having to work from home because all their offices are closed. And they have realised that, that there are all kinds of elements of themselves that are coming to life. It could be that we are realising we don't need to use all that fuel to travel in and out of cities in these tin cans that we call cars, that we don't need to fly everywhere all the time, that we could be much more gentle on the environment and our planet. That is being uncovered by this crisis. And I'm really interested in how we approach that frontier within ourselves and collectively. And I've been working on a piece about a frontier place that I was lucky enough to visit in Arizona, having talked all about how we shouldn't fly. And <laughs> I've flown there a few times. Um, and it has taken that journey to somewhere else to make me realise what's going on at home. In the film Dances with Wolves, Lieutenant Dunbar, played by Kevin Costner, at the beginning of the film, he has a crisis that uncovers something for him. He is so badly wounded, they, they tell him that they're going to have to amputate his leg. And he can't cope with that idea and he pulls on his boot and he, he, he is um, on the Yankee side of, of the American Civil War and he rides his horse at the Confederate lines. Uh, with his arms outstretched in a kind of cruciform gesture as if to say, I'd rather be shot than lose my leg. And miraculously, they don't hit him. And then they kind of call him back for another pass along the front line, and, and he does it. And they miss him again, but it galvanises his side so much that they charge at the Confederates and they win the battle. And when the general finds Lieutenant Dunbar laying on the field of battle... He orders his surgeon to be called up and they save Lieutenant Dunbar's leg. And they tell him that he is free from the front line and he can go to any posting that he wants. And he says, I want to go to the frontier before it disappears. And the frontier he's talking about is, is the frontier between the white settlers who, as we know, are taking away the Indian land, the Native American land, and that 
that frontier between the native people and the and the incoming settlers is where Dunbar feels drawn to go. And it's a hugely uncovering phenomenon for Lieutenant Dunbar. He goes to this remote fort where there's been a garrison and there's no one there anymore and he lives there alone and at, and at first he continues with the trappings of of the military colonializing spirit but he begins to have encounters with the native people and also with the wild there's a wolf that comes to befriend him and there's this extraordinary uh, scene in the extended version where he goes down to this big pool this big pond to draw water and he finds that it's full of dead animals deer um, you're never really told why but he has to to empty this pool if he is to have clean drinking water and he uses his horse to pull out all of these carcasses and he puts them in a big pyre and sets them on fire and the smoke goes up up into the atmosphere and and the native people are alerted to his presence by this bonfire And it struck me really forcefully that, that there's such a metaphor going on in this scene that, that when we are on a frontier created by a crisis, we discover that, that the pool of our unconscious has all kinds of carcasses in it. All the things that we have not wanted to look at as we live our surface life all the challenges that have come to us, all the things that we've tried to relegate and ignore into our shadow are all there and have to be exhumed and pulled out of this pool of our unconscious and dealt with. And in the dealing with that, we alert all kinds of forces and generativities and um, allies to our presence I had such an experience that is only becoming clear to me now as I've tried to write about it in a place called Araviper Canyon it's uh, outside of Phoenix and Tulsa um, I went out there to do uh, a men's event uh, the men's work that, that was was sparked off by Richard Raw, and they were having a thing called affirming which was a kind of moving on from the men's rites of passage or trying to create a deepening experience of, of liminality so that we could explore more richly that uncovered self that deeper self um, um, and we were taken out there in a in a minibus, a load of us. I remember being greeted by Richard Raw. Um, we had to go across this creek, Araviper Creek, um, and and he was smiling at us, and 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 he had these leaflets in his hand that we were all given when we got there, and some of us were from the UK, and it it was a list of all the things and creatures in this canyon that could do you damage. And it was extensive. Coyotes, tarantulas, scorpions, rattlesnakes, javelina, which are a kind of wild boar, um, mountain lions, gila monsters, it just went on and on. And at the end, it said, please remember bears wander the rim of the canyon. And I remember thinking, oh my God. So if you think you've escaped from this, this 
torture chamber of, of wildness, then you're going to get caught by a bear wandering the rim of a can the canyon, making sure you don't get out. And, uh, of course, to a lot of, of US people, none of this was a surprise, and and they were used to living in, in that kind of environment. You know, people with Kevlar snake boots. I'd got sandals on. Um, and I was immediately confronted with the fierceness of this environment and then as as the the day wore on we were, were told that this was a place where there had been a massacre an apache massacre um and and when i came home i read up about it and and there had been a, a an encampment of of apache people on the side of Viper creek and some of the the white settlers another native tribe and some mexicans who were wanting to take over the land came upon the women and children of the camp before dawn and killed over a hundred of them while the men were out hunting appalling tragedy and you could feel the land grieving how do I feel that? Well, there's an atmosphere to a place and you could feel that the atmosphere was unquiet, was unsettled, was was disturbed. And one of the elements of the time that we were to spend out there was to go up into the canyon. You walked up a track and then into it and it kind of spread out before you and dipped and 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 there were plateaus and and it was pretty spectacular a 13 mile canyon and we were to spend 24 hours out on our own under a tarpaulin in the canyon in Aravipa canyon and this was a, a huge challenge to me i was excited as a as a as an English person, the Arizona environment is is you couldn't get anywhere more different. It's dry, it's dusty, and there are these extraordinary cactus, huge cactus that you see on on the old Western John Wayne westerns with the arms coming out of them. Suaro cactus, they're called, and. Apparently, it takes something like 50 years for each of these arms to grow. So they're the equivalent of the ancient oak trees of, the, of Britain. And they're like giants in the desert. And there are also all kinds of other cacti there. There's these shola cactus that, that have what looks like a little bundles of, 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 of parts to them that that come off them and stick to anything that passes them. That's how they propagate. Everything is 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 quite needly and sharp. So when I was beginning to explore this idea of frontier and of crisis and what it uncovers, I was taken to the, the, the two occasions in which I went out into Aravipa Canyon there's a ranch in, in the valley next to the creek where we camped the first couple of nights. And then we spent this 24 hours on two different occasions up in the canyon. And I was terrified at the thought of, of all of these wild things that could hurt me. And I remember going down to camp next to the creek the night before uh, we were to go out. Um, and, and going down to the creek on my own, and it was pitch black. There is no artificial light. Uh, so it's really black. You know, apart from the starlight, which, which if there's no clouds, is quite bright. But apart from that, you know, having your eyes open and your eyes shut is about the same. And I stood by my tent having turned off my head torch 
and could feel the presence of nature all around me. And I, my imagination was running wild and I was just thinking as soon as I get in my tent, you know, everything that's described in that leaflet is going to come out and get me. And, and I literally felt the blood pumping in the, the base of my neck. And I just couldn't stay there on my own. And I went up to, to uh, one of the guys and I said, you know, when are you coming down? to uh, to 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 sleep because I can't go back down there on my own. And I was thinking, how the hell am I going to spend 24 hours out there on my own? And and he said to me, and I'll be forever grateful for this comment. Well, Adrian, you need to to recognize that you are an animal. That deep inside you, you have inherited the instincts of an animal and that you because you're a human being have an ability to empathize and think what it would be like to be other animals like a snake or a bear or a gila monster I'm not quite sure about the gila monster but you can you can conceive of where how they might live and you can trust your instincts and you can settle in to your much more deeply instinctual self while you're out there. And that was like a lifeline. I thought to myself, that makes sense to me, that's possible. That is possible. So with great trepidation, I set off the next morning into Aravaipa Canyon. And this is the piece that I've written about that, that um, sojourn. Aravaipa Canyon. The walking is hard, a steepening path ramping up into the canyon. It makes you catch your breath, you have to stop. As the cool desert dark gives way to the brow-beating heat, you are already sweating. Looking back, you glimpse Aravaipa Creek, still steeped in Apache tears where you washed before dawn. The way in flattens out, but you are still hindered by the rockiness of the path, now snaking on ahead as you begin your search for a sentinel place. A space presents itself as the wind and the needled edge of the Suaro cactus speak of the solitude that you bargain away for acquaintance. You make a camp defined by a rock circle. The chafing song of the cactus wren stirs your anxiety as a soft creature in a place of hardness. At last you become a hidden cache of silence as the dust of the trail blows over your camp and you notice how sharp everything is. The Chola cactus sticks to anything that passes like your unspoken desires snagging you, propagating. As the dusk falls, its glow sinks into the valley. Unsullied night is broken only by the cloud of starry witnesses testifying to the ceremonies that endings demand. You imagine all the creatures that live in this place. Lion, snake, scorpion, bear. Echoing the unrest of the powers in your sleep. The night cools the day's anvil and you behold each time you stir the milky way over you like another dream. Your sequestered vigil ends as the second dawn brightens the canyon's edge and the countless soirée regather 
their ancient shadows and you find your own waiting for you on the track. Retracing your steps, you find a cactus rib, the inner scaffold of an old giant laying staff-like in your path, and it feels like a call. The rib of this creature in your hand, guiding you on the path that frees your heart from its cage. You cut down the arroyo with care, as distant rains can flood the sandy gulch, trails not made by human feet. Coming back to the ranch, the dust from the canyon billows off you, and you remember what happened here. You hear the ground calling for reparation, marking you out, scarring you like this land, and you accept there will always be a frontier in your life that you name Ara Viper. There will always be a frontier in your life that you name Ara Viper. What's described in this poem happened to me before I had the crisis of anxiety. It happened before coronavirus. But the fierceness of that place that I walked willingly into revealed, uncovered the fierceness of experience for me. It showed me as someone from the United Kingdom for whom all of these creatures and all of that wildness was uncommon, was unencountered, it showed me what it means to live, to exist, to spend time in such fierceness, in such wildness, in such liminality. It showed me how beautiful, how stunningly beautiful those places are. In fact, I remember after the second time I went out there feeling a sense of disappointment that I didn't really encounter any of those creatures. I'm not sure I really would have liked to have met a mountain lion, but, but there was something inside me that settled when I was out there that relaxed the instinctual part of me calmed down was alert and attentive but was calm and still We were asked to find a place to sit and be and, and put up our tarpaulin and not, not to stray away from that space, but to stay in it. And I tried to find a place where I thought, you know, there wouldn't be a rattlesnake under a rock waiting to come out when it was dark. I remember being told a story or reading a story, uh, a Native American story about um, a shaman who went up into a canyon like Aravipa and, and sat cross-legged through the night. And at the beginning of the night, as the desert cools down, which it does, a rattlesnake slithered into his lap and settled there because it was warm and went to sleep. And he had to sit there immobile for the whole night while this snake was in his lap and then in the morning as 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 the desert warmed up the snake slithered away to find a warm rock to sleep on they were the things that were in my imagination when i was out there but there's something very powerful about that story so we were to find a space and as i say a sentinel place and, and you could hear 
in fact, I went because I had near me one of the Suaro cactus. I went and stood by it, and you could hear the wind blowing down the ridges of needles, and it made this eerie, lonely sound that almost was like the sound of solitude. And and I recognised in the writing of this piece that that solitude is, is really challenging. It, it pushes you back onto your lonely, isolated self and asks you, what do you feel connected to? What is it that matters to you? What is it that you are about? And what, how you bargain away this solitude in your life that is so rich for the insufficient reward of acquaintance. I've noticed when powerful things happen to us, when, when I've done um, work with groups and something powerful's happened, if you don't surround that powerful thing, that play, I remember going to see Serrano de Bergerac with Derek Jacobi in the main role, and it was a three, it had two intervals, it was about a nearly four hour production. And it ends with this incredible speech and death of Serrano. And he has this white plume on his on his uh, hat, and he he calls it his panache. And and it it's just an incredible play, and it was brilliantly acted. And when he when when he finished the speech and he dies, the lights came back up, and and the cast all stood up. And the audience, I've never ever heard this before or after were completely silent. They were completely silent. And no one wanted to break the silence by clapping. And then finally someone made that one clap and then there was thunderous applause. But, but when we experience powerful things, I've noticed that Although we have the instinct to surround them by silence, we also have the fear of that and want to talk ourselves out of it. We want to analyse, we want to, to go up into our thinking part and, and, and almost talk ourselves out of it. And we couldn't do that on this sojourn in Aravaipa Canyon. And I realised I was this soft creature in this place of hardness. But that as I encountered and embraced the solitude, I became what I describe in the piece as a hidden cache of silence. A cache is where you store treasure. I, it was almost like I was gathering silence to myself. And I noticed the dust blowing over my camp and how sharp everything was. And, and as I described before, this sholler cactus, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, with these little sticky buds that, that stuck to everything. And, and I was trying to understand what they were a metaphor for. And it... And it it came to me that they were like my unspoken desires. The solitude uncovered the crisis that we're experiencing at the moment, a crisis of anxiety. It uncovers your desires. I remember reading a book about anxiety when I was really deep into it. And it said, what is it that you were unable to do? because of your anxiety what would you want to do again and for me it was it was simple things like going to the cinema or um, going to a restaurant um, spending time in a bigger group all the things that agoraphobia strips from you 
but also that what I wanted was more time, time to write, time to go for a walk with the dog. During this um, crisis uh, lockdown period, I've gone walking a lot of days with my son and, and it's uncovered all kinds of conversations that we have had that I would never have had had there not been this crisis. And we have, I think, uncovered our unspoken desires. The things we're frightened to say we want. Because, well, I'll leave that to you. There's all sorts of becauses. But these desires, if we let them in, in a more stripped down place, they are like those bits of the cactus. They snag onto you. And, and what they want to do is propagate. Our desires, I remember being surprised when I studied Ignatian spirituality, the spirituality of St Ignatius of Loyola, that he talked about that deep within us were God-given desires and that the, that the deepest work of spirituality and of prayer and of silence and of solitude and all of these practices was to unearth those desires. And the deepest desire I think we all have is, is for love, to love and to be loved. And this is what's propagating in this piece. This unspoken desires that, that finally might be given a voice. And I remember being surprised at how quickly the day passed and the incredible sight of the sun going down in the canyon and the gradations of colour all giving way to this midnight black blue pinks and golds and honeys and sunflower yellows and just incredible colour array that ha seems to happen just about every night and then this this blackness this bluey blackness and and fortunately both times the cloud would clear and and the first time i thought it was a cloud and and i remember saying to someone when i went back down to the ranch there was this incredibly wonderful cloud above me I said that wasn't a cloud that was a milky way um and i'd never seen it before so clearly and and it just was extraordinary. And that sinking, the dying of the light, as Dylan Thomas calls it, was amazing. And it testified, as the poem says, to the ceremonies, the endings demand. In that synchronicity or serendipity that the connection between the inner and the outer world creates my wife just arrived back I had to break off doing the podcast with the um, the body of our old cat Noah who sadly had to uh, be put to sleep at the vets a day or so ago and and she just pulled up and we went and buried him in the garden and had a ceremony that endings demand um, he has been with us 18 years. He was one of seven kittens that April, uh, his mother had, who is still with us. She's 19. And we were just recognising that it feels like the end of an era as all these old cats are passing on. There's only two left. At one point we had 13. Slightly crazy, but anyway. Um, it feels like there's a transition going on 
in our lives to do with our children becoming completely adult and the world that we are now encountering. So in the sunny afternoon of the garden, we laid him to rest where he used to sleep. The life had gone out of him and that was very obvious. He had his little paws crossed. The life goes out of things and that's when it needs to be ceremoniously let go so that other life can emerge. And so in the peace, I ceremoniously let go of the day. All cultures have that idea of the lamp lighting. Vespers, the word vespers for evening prayer means lamp lighting. It's the letting go of the day. <clears throat> I let go of the day and found myself in the night, the dark night. And I imagine the creatures that live in this place, lion, snake, scorpion, bear, because the darkness allows you to feel those energies echoing the unrest of the powers in your sleep. Over the past few years of doing Jungian therapy and being prepared to, to feel the unrest of the powers in my sleep, I've had dreams of many different animals and uh, I've tried to write poems about them as a way of, of, of understanding what Barbara Hanna says about when you dream of an animal, it's a power inside you and you, that's unconscious to you looking to emerge because you've made a good ceremony uh, of the ending of something else. So the dolphin and the donkey, uh, the raven and the lion uh, uh, are things that I have dreamt of. And they speak to us of the new things that are, are coming into our consciousness, the powers in our sleep. The night calls the day's anvil and you behold each time you stir the Milky Way over you like another dream. You're in that dream state between waking and sleeping which is so rich and yet so unsettling and disturbing because it's introducing us to parts of ourselves we didn't even know was there. Your sequestered vigil ends as the second dawn brightens the canyon's edge and the countless Suaro regather their ancient shadows and you find your own waiting for you on the track. I have certainly found elements of my shadow in my dreams that they're then are visible in my waking life waiting for me on the track as I begin the journey. Retracing your steps, I say. So leaving finally the canyon, carrying with me everything that has happened in that time. I find a cactus rib. The Suaro cactus, what holds them up, are these, uh, the, the, it feels like wood, I suppose it is wood, uh, wooden ribs like the scaffolding that keep them steady and uh, there was one laying across my path the inner scaffold of an old giant laying staff-like in your path and it feels like a call and it did it did feel like a call and I'm still wrestling with what the call was and this rib I brought down back to the ranch and one of the men said to me oh you should you should definitely take that home and I was like well I, I, I've got to fly so uh, God bless him he um, he FedExed it to me and uh, unfortunately it found its way to Sheffield Australia to begin with and um, uh, and then he assiduously traced this package and it finally found its way to me in Sheffield having traveled all over the world and I still have it it, it was was um, broken not completely and I've uh, screwed it together and bound it together and it and it sits in my writing space and and I often hold it and look at it and think 
What were you calling me to? This ancient rib, this part of the, the ancient cactus, this inner stiffness that keeps them upright in, in the anvil heat of the day and the cold of the night. What are you calling me to? We each find on the track times and symbols that, that illuminate who we are and where we should go next. The rib of this creature in your hand guiding you on the path that frees your heart from its cage. I was thinking about ribs and about the way the ribs protect the heart, but or we call it the rib cage. And and somehow this call that the that the staff was giving me was was about freeing my heart from its cage. For me, a lot of the cages are about not appreciating my own life. I encage myself in inadequacy, thinking other people have got it right and I haven't. Or other people know their own inner authority and their inner sense of who they are and, and I'm playing at it and I haven't got it. And it makes me feel incredibly vulnerable and 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 it's and it's sometimes got me into real difficulties with relationships um, looking for someone else to complete me whereas what this ancient rib is saying is it, it, your heart is all there it just needs to be freed it just needs to be freed from its cage by your walking along the track. You cut down the arroyo with care as distant rains can flood the sandy gulch trails not made by human feet. I was very aware we were told to be very careful if we were not, certainly not to camp in an arroyo. They are ancient riverbeds that, that when there's a, a, a storm there, there can be flash floods and the water can rush down them. And, and you might not have even heard the storm. It can be miles away. So I was very cautious walking down this, this arroyo, this gulch, and, and aware that this was not a trail made by human feet and that it was not humans that walked this. And, and there's something mysterious about that, that there are times when you find yourself on a path that, that is not common that only you are walking and and you have to walk it very carefully but it gets you back to the ranch coming back to the ranch the dust from the canyon billows off you and you remember what happened here when when I was writing this piece it kept coming back to me that this was a place where a massacre had happened where great injustice had happened and it was part of a greater injustice that that certainly people from my country were a huge part of the stealing of all that land and and you hear the ground calling for reparation calling for reparation and and i think we all hear that call at the moment incredibly intensely of the environment at the world that we live on asking to be repaired that's what reparation means to be repaired to 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 be given its due to 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 do penance if you like to use the old catholic way of looking at things um I, I became a Catholic when I was a young man and when you go to confession you have to do penance. We have confessions to make about the way we live on the land and penance to do in order to make reparation. And I could feel that call in Viper Canyon really powerfully because it's so stark and so vivid 
and I feel that frontier inside me, um, the frontier of my anxiety and my breakdown that, that break me open to seeing myself differently and to living differently on the, on, the, on the land. You hear the ground calling for reparation, marking you out, scarring you like this land. I feel scarred by the things that have happened to me. Scarring you like this land. And you accept that there will always be a frontier in your life that you name Ara Viper. You accept that there will always be a frontier in your life that you name Ara Viper. I wrestled with the ending of this poem for quite a long time. And I'm grateful to a really good friend who helped me work on this poem. And, and, and when I found the word frontier, you accept that there will always be a frontier in your life that you name Ara Viper. I realised that, that my experience in that canyon that had stayed with me from both my trips there, that bringing that, getting that cactus rib here in Sheffield and coming home from the canyon, that it, it created a place in me that I've kept going back to and trying to think through and looking at the photographs of. And the word frontier, it's, it's like in Dances with Wolves, it's that unknown place between the world that you've known and the world that you are wanting to encounter. You know there's something there that, that you want to reach out to, but it's scary and frightening and astonishing and ordinary and every day, all of those things all at once. The amazing thing about the film Dances with Wolves is the very name of it. He is called Lieutenant John Dunbar, but he is befriended by a wolf that he calls Two Socks. I think it's Two Socks. And it's got white paws that look like socks. And it, it, it follows him and plays with him. And the native people who are attracted by the fire that he's made and start watching him, see him play with this wolf. With this wolf. And they call him Dances with Wolves. And they name him the frontier that he wanted to experience before it was gone and made that great ceremony, the endings demand of the burning of all the things that were in the pond, in the pool. He finds a new name, which is a new part of himself. And, and I don't want to completely spoil the film if you've not seen it, but he enters a whole other culture that awakens him to who he really is. And he gets this new name and he finds a new partner and, an, and, and a, a new family. It's incredible. And he is restored and he makes reparation. It's very powerful. And, and for me, I'm trying to name in this piece that frontier between where I've been and where my anxiety has led me to this frontier to reach out into the new stage, the next part whatever that will be and that's that's a constant process there will always be a frontier in your life that you name Ara Viper there's always ceremonies to be made endings to be done and fierce experiences to be had and the need to find a sentinel place every so often where you can allow this to happen to you, where you can feel the powers in your sleep, where you can sense the unrest, where you don't run from it, where you can hear 
the needle, the wind on the needled edge of the cactus and recognise that, that that solitude mustn't be bargained away for acquaintance, for, for something that's not worth having. And that, that your heart wants to be freed from, from the cage of the things that you've surrounded it with to protect it, but actually just stop you from being in that real wonderful vulnerability that, that says, I, I need to be here. I need to feel all these things. I need to find courage to be on the frontier in my life that I name Aravaiper. Each person will give it a different name, but for me, writing this piece has helped me realise how to name that frontier. And I need courage to be there. Courage is not fearlessness, it's, for me, it's fearfulness. I'm full of fear. And I also recognise when I'm curious about that fear that it's very similar to excitement. That the butterflies in my stomach and, and, and the, the feeling of, of vibration and, and trembling is a cross between fear and excitement. It, in other words, it's presenting me with a gateway to a new element of myself and it takes courage to be that vulnerable to stay on that frontier and not run away from it one of the things that happens to lieutenant john dunbar on that frontier is that he has to be prepared to shed the uniform of the american army and find a new way of dressing and being in the world and that's a very vulnerable place for him and we i in this poem realize that there are things that you have to take off to expose the more vulnerable part of yourself because that's where those new elements exist in that frontier of, of vulnerability I can't even say it that frontier of vulnerability where you're uncertain I really as I said in one of these podcasts don't trust certainty I trust uncertainty that's safely held because then the frontier in your life that I name Aravaiper is a healing, transformative place that allows me to identify those new elements of myself that that staff represents and keep having the conversation with myself about that call and about my shadow on the track and about the freedom that my heart is looking for and to always know that the cloud of starry witnesses are in my sleep and that there are animals in my sleep that want to guide me and lead me and keep me awake to that vulnerability to the frontier in my life that I name Aravaipa. Once again, thanks for being part of this conversation that is my podcast i am the anxious poet i'm adrian scott until the next time we meet go well and always remember that 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 anxiety is a potential doorway to new elements in your life and though it can be agony it also can be a companion that introduces us to a new world. Go well. See you next time. 
poetry, anxiety, and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. <laughs>